1: Likely from Bordeaux, and possibly from Saint-Emilion, Semillon's name may come from an old pronunciation of Saint-Emilion. In France, Semillon is usually blended with Savillon Blanc to make Bordeaux Blanc. Its thin skins are fairly prone to botrytis in the right areas, and if harvested with botrytis, it can make excellent dessert wines in Sauternes and Lombasiac. Like many iconic French varieties, Semillon has spread throughout the world And in the Diaspora, you'll find strongholds in South Africa, Chile, and down under in Australia. If you focus in on New South Wales in Australia, particularly in Riverina and Hunter Valley, you'll find an incredible wine culture that orbits around Semillon's uniqueness. Like Bordeaux, here you'll find Dry Semillon and Botrytis Sweet Semillon. On the sweet side, Debertoli has been making Petritus Semillon since 1982. And on the drier side, you'll find some different styles. There are crisp, young wines with zesty citrus notes, meant to be a counterpoint alternative to the ocean of Aussie Semillon Blanc that's out there. And you'll also find some dense wines with intense concentration and compaction that are released on the later side. Hunter Valley is famous for these serious and powerful aged Semillons, and they can be pretty magical at the table with food. You'll usually see them with about 15 years of age on them, but they can last much longer. These wines are one of the great treasures of the wine world. Semillon's history in the Hunter Valley dates back at least since the mid-1800s, where it was known as Hunter River Riesling. And vines have been in the area since at least 1823, when 20 acres of vineyards were reported. And that acreage rose to 500 over the next 17 years, in what was an early renaissance of wines in the area. Today, almost two centuries later, we see another renaissance as Hunter Valley's identity focuses in on high-quality Semillon. Keep listening to hear more from one producer who makes benchmark Semillon. Some bottlings are from vineyards with more than a century of age on them.
0: I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I D E A L W I N E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Bruce Tyrrell of Tyrrell Vineyards in Australia. Hello, sir. How are you?
2: Good, good. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be back in the States and good to be back in New York.
0: So you're based in the Hunter Valley, although you have vineyards elsewhere.
2: Yeah, home base is Hunter Valley. My great-grandfather arrived there in 1858, and the basis of the winery where we live is all there on the same estate. Uh, We've got vineyards in a couple of other places. In Limestone Coast, the vineyard used to be in Coonawarra right down the bottom of South Australia, and they redrew the lines, and uh, we're now close to Coonawarra. And then we have Vineyard in Heathcote, which is central Victoria, Uh, about an hour and a half pretty much due north of Melbourne. We went there in 1994, bought an old wheat paddock, and uh, away we went again. And you
0: have family ties to James Busby, the guy who brought European cuttings to Australia.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Busby's often quoted as being the father of the Australian wine industry. I'm not quite sure that's entirely correct. The first grapes in our area were planted about 1828. We've actually got somebody researching the exact year now because we're getting awfully close to 200 years. But yeah, Busby, um, I I still, every time I talk about him, I stutter. um, To think that in about 1830, there was a politician that had the foresight to send the Scots agriculture teacher back to Europe to get the great grapevine collection. And he was gone about three and a half years and he came back with just over 800 different varieties and different clones of varieties. He did Spain, uh, south of France, the Rhone, bit across into Italy, himself and Portugal, Uh, And then the rest of the collection he bought out came from the University at Montpellier and the Botanic Gardens in Paris. So he left with a bit over 800 different grape varieties and clones. And a bit over 400 of it survived the trip. Obviously, the collection belonged to the government, but he kept something of everything, and he brought that up to the Hunter Valley to his father's property. Now, his sister married the property manager, and two of her sons, their sons, married two of my great-aunts. So that was, that's a very long and complicated way of doing it. One of them, Arthur Kelman, married my great-aunt Flo, and they always said that the only reason Arthur died early was well, it was the only way he could get away from Flo. <laughs> There's not a photograph of her ever with a smile on her face. Uh, but then Busby didn't hang around too long. He went to New Zealand... And uh, he's a signatory on the Treaty of Waitangi, which is what brought the whites and the, uh, the Maori together in New Zealand. So it's quite important there. And then went home and he's buried in Scotland.
0: And the Hunter is basically the oldest wine-growing region in Australia, right? Yeah. Of yeah, all no, the regions.
2: It's, it's the first of all. Sydney City itself. Um, was it in 1811, the biggest vineyard in Australia was at Dromoyne in Sydney? And it was at the mental hospital. And you imagine how much happier the patients would be if they were on port and not Valium. Um, But of course, in the early days, all the early winemakers were all doctors because they had an understanding of fermentation and the science of it and could make wine without losing too much of it.
0: And the Hunter today is really not that far from Sydney.
2: No, today it's two hours drive. It's about 100 miles uh, north. It's freeway most of the way. It's very easy. And of course, that today makes us one of the major tourist destinations in the country. We always say there are more people come to the Hunter Valley than come to South Australia. We have about 3 million visitors a year. Uh, and it's that's a proximity thing. We're very lucky to be exactly where we are. We, however, we've always said that the industry in, in the Hunter Valley Makes about 2% of the wine and about 50% of the noise. <laughs>
0: and that's just because you have a loud voice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a number <laughs> of us with loud voices that, uh, that have always got something to say and an opinion.
0: But between Busby and now, what happened in the Hunter? I mean,
2: from those early days, it grew and grew quite rapidly. Again, someone in the government had the brains to bring out a French winemaker, teacher, Philibert Terrier. And his job was to teach the locals how to make wine. Interestingly, he started exhibiting his own wines in the Paris exhibition. And after the third year, they banned him from ever showing again because he won everything, including champagne. So that gave the area a start. It's continued to grow. At the turn of the century, 1900, the area was bigger than it is today. Uh, The Campbell Winery... Which is a family don't exist and the winery doesn't exist. It got burnt down in a bushfire in nineteen sixty-eight. But in eighteen eighty-five, they had storage for six hundred and fifty thousand gallons, which would have put them in the top thirty wineries in Australia today. No power, all horses and steam engines and that sort of stuff. So uh, and we were selling fortified wine locally. Bit of table wine, but not much. Fortified wine to Great Britain and a lot of bulk red to Germany. So we have a lot of where I live now was owned by Gottlieb Beckett. Young guy worked for me for 20 years, Jason Becker. His grandfather came out from Germany as Cooper to Lindemann's because they were exporting a lot of red in bulk to Germany.
0: So the history of the great plantings, I mean, was it mostly red? Was it mostly white? How did it evolve?
2: I would have thought in those days mostly red that's what they had a market for, and also the technology of making white in what can be a warmer area, and, and we can get very hot days, we can get cold nights during the vintage period, but if you don't have refrigeration and you've got a 45 degree day, uh, you've got a real problem holding your whites, so you make coarse, broad, hot whites, and the major change to white wine making came in the late 60s. Um, well, started in the late 50s uh, when we got electricity. Uh, I remember 1958 we got electricity, and I remember the smell of kerosene disappearing from the house. It was all kerosene lamps for light, and we had a kerosene fridge. And woe betide me if it ran out of kerosene. You'd <laughs> get flogged for that. Um, and so that meant we could have proper refrigeration. Before that, we used to drive into the ice works in Cessnock, every night at Vintage and buy half a ton of ice in big blocks and you'd throw those in the ferment to keep them cool.
0: So you're about 65 now? Yeah. So what was your childhood like?
2: Oh, look, totally different life to today. You know, it was after the First World War, really, when all those overseas markets, obviously Germany and, and the British one had disappeared. And also a big percentage of the young men of Australia had disappeared in that war as well. Then the bank crashes and the depressions and, and the industry really went into a nosedive. The Second World War came along. Again, a fairly big loss of young men who were the drinkers. And the only reason I think the wine industry survived was fortified wine and beer was expensive and it was hard to get. There was a beer shortage for five or six years. And so fortified wine was what people drank. And so in the early 60s, The table wine market was minuscule, absolutely minuscule in Australia. As late as 1984, our three top-selling wines at Cellador were Sparkling Moselle had a plastic screw cap on it. Sparkling Moselle, special sweet cherry, and the star on the horizon was a thing called Blackberry Nip that was port with blackberry essence in it. And I hate to think what anyone's stomach looked like the next day if they drank a bottle of it. So as a kid... It was a little quiet backwater, 700 acres of vineyard, still a bit of mixed farming, fruit trees, cattle. Uh, My dad had spent most of the time in the cattle industry. We had a very quiet rural life. You know, my sister went off to boarding school and my best mates were my horse and my dog. And I used to ride the horse to school every day.
0: Does that imply that wine wasn't really like a luxurious, hip-happening thing to do back then?
2: No, God, no, 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 no. Wine was almost looked down on us, um, and I suppose it had got that reputation from 30 years before when that's all there was to drink and anyone who was down on their luck was drinking fortified wine because uh, they couldn't afford beer, and, you know, if life was tough, well, it would blow the cobwebs away for 24 hours until you save it up and came back to normal. <laughs> um, but, yeah, very, very much frowned on a lot of cases. not. It was a thing for the intelligentsia, people in universities and doctors and judges drank wine, but not many other people did.
0: So when was the winery actually founded?
2: winery was actually founded in 1858. My great-grandfather and his elder brother, one of his elder brothers, uh, landed in Australia in 1855. So he was a teenager. Then he was 16, 17. Um, Their father had died. He was an eye surgeon in London. In fact, there were three generations of them. There's a thing they still use in eye surgery today called the Tyrrell hook, which his father had invented. So, as happened in those days in England, the mother had to remarry quickly to survive. The elder son got all the money, and the rest of them could please themselves. So he and his elder brother came to Australia. Their uncle was the first Anglican bishop of Newcastle. We have actually got a copy of his letter of appointment, the old bishop, and... His diocese is described as from the Hawkesbury River, which is between us and Sydney, to Rockhampton, which is halfway up the Queensland coast. Um, It says from the Hawkesbury River to Rockhampton and the unknown lands beyond. So he had 20% of Australia and was known as the bishop on horseback. He covered it six times, completely on horse. And in the end died of shock uh, in a hernia operation because he refused to have anaesthetic because he wanted to know what it would be like to be operated on. That killed him. So they arrived. The eldest one came out, as a, it's a wonderful term, as a candidate for orders. And he went into the church and did very nicely. And then my great-grandfather took up what was called a conditional purchase. So you could take a maximum of 320 acres you had to settle it, you had to clear it, you had to work it, you had to build a house, you had to plant crops. You had to pay it off, but at a very, very cheap price. Um, great-grandfather paid it off in 1905, so he, he strung him out for a while. Uh, and in its early days, would have been a mixed farm. It would have been some grapes, some fruit trees, a few cattle. But, but it amazes me, you know, this guy's 17, 18 years old, come from a relatively privileged life in London, Um, and he's dropped in the middle of the Australian scrub, and got to cut the trees and whatever, and I think in the end, there's not a lot of history about him, unfortunately, but I think probably the amount of physical, sheer physical hard work probably got him, Uh, although he was late 70s when he died, so we hadn't done too bad. Uh, and then his eldest son, Uncle Dan, as we call him, uh, took over, and he ran the place for seventy odd years. And when he died, my father took over, and the rest history.
0: What was Uncle Dan
2: like? Don't remember him much. He was um, very tall. He was six foot six. He was very. I remember him as a very tall, grey-haired old man, stooped old man, with a walking stick, and probably not a lot of time for small boys. So. I made sure I stayed out of the range of the walking stick. I do remember him showing me one day there was a dump heap, all the old bottles and stuff. Were, I remember he took me in and a black snake had gone into a bottle. And, of course, they can't go backwards. So this snake had turned around and was trying to get out and couldn't, and it was biting itself and, and eventually obviously killed itself. Um,
0: a lot of fun times with Uncle Dane then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I
2: used to, I remember seeing him with a black snake in the winery and he grabbed it by the tail and cracked it like a whip cracked its head off he had his left hand the first knuckle missing and he and Uncle Billy as we call him Uncle Billy Wilkins were out shooting they got through a fence and Dan's gun went off shotgun went off pointed at Uncle Billy's back and he stuck his fingers in the barrel and of course blew the end off his fingers but saved Uncle Billy's back of his head being blown off but, yeah, I look, I don't have a lot of memory of him. He died in 1959, so I was eight. My grandfather died in 1956. He was 20 years younger than Uncle Dan, but had been badly wounded in the leg and gassed on the Somme World War One. So he, he always had trouble with his legs and his feet. He would, I have a memory of him bathing his feet. But he's probably, Dan gets the credit, he ran the family and whatever, and the, being the winemaker and apparently had regarded as the best sherry palate in the country in his heyday. But my grandfather Avery was the vineyard man. And the reason we've got all these vineyards over 100 years old was my grandfather and his ability to, to prune. I remember my mother saying, he used to say, Dan and go pruning. And that meant that he'd have to go through and do them again to make sure they were right. And that, that grapevines were like people, everyone was different. And you had to treat them that way. And Um. yeah, he was probably, Dan gets a lot of credit for probably what my grandfather did.
0: So did the winery shift to more whites at some point?
2: The whites came, (laughs) there was an article written in, oh, gee, uh, 1904. It's called A Visit to the Grapevines and Orchards. And Edward Tyrrell had just planted three acres of the Prince of White varieties, and it was Ocaro. Which is horrible stuff. <laughs> big coarse flabby low acid. But they must have thought something of it in those days. And I suppose we really the big move to white, we always had white. Uh, and it was Semillon, Trebbiano and Claret, or Blanquette we called it. And the Trebbiano was there as an acid addition, and the Blanquette was there for when you had a light year. You know, you can't make Blanquette go rotten. They got skins like footballs. But they're broad and coarse, and but a bit of it in the semillon in a light year would fix it up. I think, as I said before, the big change was, was with refrigeration. When we had that, then we could control the white ferments. And, you know, they were always great. Lindemans had done it. Lindemans had worked with pressure fermenters, with refrigeration, all of that fellow called Ray Kidd, who ran the company for many years and had studied as a winemaker. And in his first year or two, he got very badly gassed with sulfur and he couldn't work in the winery any longer because if he got a whiff, he was gone. And so we took to managing the winery. And uh, Ray did a lot of that stuff in the 50s, early 60s, where he really pushed the boundaries and improved white. And I suppose we all followed him. And it was then that, you know, the whites took off.
0: What was your dad up to?
2: Uh, well, until the late 50s, he'd spent most of his time in the cattle business. He was buying and selling cattle, and then, uh, in, what was it, 57, Uncle Dan fell off a ladder in the winery, and that pretty much wrecked him. Um, he really couldn't do a lot of work after that, and so Dad had to come back and spend more and more and more time at the winery, and then, of course, Uncle Dan died, he took it over. He had two brothers, but they were both respectable professions, they were both bank managers. Where today, of course, the Vigneron's king and the bank manager's the crook. (laughs) Uh, No, they'd gone off and joined the bank. And so then Dad came in and took over. And Uncle Dan had died as a bachelor with everything in his own name with no will. And there were death duties in those days, so there were all sorts of problems. Um, And we'd had to buy out Dad's two brothers after his father had died, so there wasn't any money much either. Uh, and so that was the end of selling most of our wine in bulk. Uh, it had been sold to merchants or to Morris O'Shea at Mount Pleasant. And so we stopped that and started to sell it ourselves.
0: You figured you'd make more profit, yeah. more margin.
2: more and, uh, and so that was sort of the start of Tyrell's as it is today. Um. I wrote the first direct mail brochure in the Australian wine industry in, is 1978. Uh, Mum and Dad had been at an National Wine and Food Society convention in London and Robert Mondavi had done this tasting exercise, whatever. And uh, they'd brought home the brochure that he used and I saw that and went, oh, hang on a minute, this is what I need. And so did that and started what is a very big direct-to-consumer business. That we have today.
0: Well, I mean, with all those tourists from Sydney, I mean, it only makes sense, right?
2: Yeah. And and look, you can tie people to you there. It's where they become, uh, it's a bad word, but that's where you get your groupies.
0: <laughs> we say ambassadors. <laughs> you ambassadors, know. Yeah, yeah, groupies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different kind of. Yeah, it
2: means the same thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so when did you get involved directly with the winery? What?
2: I, suppose I was involved since the day I could walk, but... Um, Actually, my first memory of the winery—I was been two or three—and uh, it was vintage time, and I was run- the winery was my playground as a kid, and I was running around. We had a vat outside; the grapes were tipped into, it, and then you shoveled them up an elevator to the crusher in the roof. And I was walking around beside it. Dad was cleaning it, and he tipped the bucket of water over the side. Didn't know I was there because I wasn't as tall as the side of the vat. Tipped it straight in my head, frightened the hell out of me. And. Uh, but then really from a young age, I, I was a nine-year-old, I had to go up on a Sunday and open cellar door because if we didn't get some money, we didn't eat.
0: That was uh, the selling bottles to yeah, the people coming people by, pouring yeah. tastings.
2: I took 60 quid for the day. <laughs> Thank God a very old customer turned up about lunchtime and he helped me for the day. But yeah, then really all the way through school, you'd come home from high school from probably 14 on. On weekends and I'd work at Cellador. I always worked in the winery at Vintage time, all through probably the set till oh, mid-70s. I ran the Vintage Cellar, so the Receival of the Grapes and all of that stuff. It was then, you know, we weren't that big, it was all older equipment and it was all manual. So uh, I couldn't possibly have been any fitter. I mean, 1979, we had a massive vintage and... Uh, I worked nine, nine odd weeks without a day off, uh, seven days a week, and averaging about 18, 20 hours a day. The last week of vintage was a lot of coffee, a lot of brandy, and a lot of cigarettes to keep going.
0: <laughs> so when did the Vat 1 semion come along?
2: First Vat 1 was 1962. And really what the Vats were, we um, 58, 60, and 62, we got almost wiped out by hail in each of those years. And so the only wine we had to show people, table wine, was young wine in the barrel. So we'd take them around the little cellar as it was, winery in those days, and people would basically, you'd show them every cask of wine you had. And, uh, you know, someone would come in and say, oh, I like the wine in cask nine. So they'd get a dozen vat nine, and when the wine was bottled, then we'd dispatch it to them. And so that's where the vat number thing started from. There were about 55 separate red vats, uh, and in the early 70s, I reduced those back to basically to distinct block wine. So you'd have four casks off the one block of vineyard that all tasted the same. So it was a bit pointless and a bit confusing. And, of course, the popular ones sold, and the least popular ones that were basically the same wine didn't.
0: But what was the origin of the Semyon Vat one?
2: It was always the Semillon from the what we call a short flat vineyard, which is across the road. Um, the across the road from the winery. From the winery, yeah. The top thousand gallons would be fermented in cask one, and uh, then we actually put coils, stainless steel coils, through the middle of the cask and hook those up to a brine tank, a uh, cold water tank. It was supposed to start with, and then circulate that, and that that started to be able to control uh, control the temperature of the ferment. And, you know, rest went from there.
0: It was a short flat vineyard which had some calcite in it?
2: It's the one, yeah. It's, it's a, one of the things about the Hunter Valley, there are, the soil changes quite rapidly and quite distinctively, and there are patches of unique soil all over the valley. The short flat, as we call it, has got this band of calcite through it. And when you look at it from the air, the um, HVD vineyard, it's a sort of beach sand colour you fly over the flat, short flat, and it's white. Really, the soil's quite white.
0: So does that mean it's a calcite uh, related to
2: limestone? To limestone, yeah. Uh, And limestone seems to be where you get the better pHs and the better acids. Um, So the Semillon thing ran along uh, after those hailstorms. Dad used to pick it really early, like nine, nine and a half alcohol.
0: Oh, he wanted to get the fruit in before the hail? Yeah, as
2: soon as he saw a cloud in the sky, he used to pick because we couldn't afford not to. I remember a great friend of ours who was a show judge, a fellow called Graeme Gregory, tried, oh, I forget what year it was, might have been 67, and he looked at my old man and said, Jesus Murray, there's enough acid in that to take the enamel off your teeth. <laughs> um, and, and so it was very difficult to sell. We called it Hunter River Riesling till 1990. That's what it was known as. And then both McWilliams and ourselves, who were the major producers, then changed in the same time changed the semilon. Uh, and we changed a lot of things at that time. We were always told, you yeah, know, you're wasting your time with semolon, come over here, wasting time with semalon. But where is it where it shows at its best is when it's had some bottle age. So I put a thousand dozen VAT 1989 away. Production manager and I hit it in the warehouse, put it behind a whole heap of red uh, in a corner where no one could find it. And five, six years later, we started pulling it out and we started putting it in wine shows and started winning a heap of goals and trophies. And um, But I'd been banned from doing it. The board, my father, the rest of the family said, you'll break us, you can't do it. But we did it anyhow.
0: What was the impetus for that? I mean, you just ah. figured it
2: would, yeah. Oh, and you, we'd looked at what Lindemans had done, for instance. Were these wonderful Semelons with bottle age, and they were dominating the wine shows and dominating the press. And so, yeah, we needed to do something to create interest, and that was to me seemed to be the way to do it. So off we went, and um, and we sort of mucked around here and there. And then in 1990, Andrew Spinnacy, who's our current chief winemaker, took over as chief winemaker. And Spin and I did a couple of things, one thing. As we promised each other we'd never push a wine up. We'd only ever push a wine down. And the only thing that mattered in the end was quality. And if we didn't have everything good enough for that one, then there would be no that one. But we then also, I think, realised that we were lucky enough to work with something that was unique. And so we set about working that through and, and Spin working on his techniques on equipment, on a whole range of things to improve it. And I went out into the district to look for the best vineyards. And so we, HVD, which we bought as a single vineyard. We bought that vineyard from Penfolds in, we bought that in 1982. The the Stevens, which is another one who we buy the grapes from, they're, they're grape growers, um, they came to us in 1992. And then the old Elliott family, Belford Vineyard, we started to buy the grapes in, ooh, gee, test me now, um, on a permanent basis about 92 or three, and today we lease that vineyard from the current owners. So that, and then there's another one called Pocolbin Hills, which we lease as well. So I think there's only one Semillon vineyard in the valley that I don't have that I really want, and McWilliams are not going to give me love though that's <laughs> not gonna happen <laughs> i wouldn't have thought
0: so all of those are planted as semillon yeah and what are the differences between because those are also correspond to different bottlings of semillon that you make
2: the fact that it's the vineyard's planted on its own or it's a block doesn't mean you're gonna bottle it as a single vineyard it has to have its own distinct character and its little nuances in the soil and position and the Belfords, it's about 20 k's north of the winery. It's like a little hidden garden. You, if you don't know the vineyards here, you would never find it. In the bend of a creek, the soil's like talcum powder. Amazing stuff. But never have a disease problem or, or any major disease problem. There's no vineyard close to it. Uh, and it was planted in 1933. HVDs, heavier soil, and got river sand under it. This creek runs on either side of it. Uh, and they're fed out of the only sweet gully that runs out of the mountain We've, because We're because we're a vast undersea canyon, then shallow tropical sea. Soil's actually quite salty. And most of the gullies, there's plenty of underground water, but it's all, you know, if you put it on your lawn, it's dead for 50 years. And and so there's this sweet water and it's running there all the time. So crops are reasonably good. And they're bigger and softer and got those characters. The Stevens is... Got some sand and got some red country in it. Vines planted 1911 to 1966. And it's, it's right the other end from HVD. It's this the really fine end of perfume. There's the big sweet end of perfume and then there's the really fine end. Well, that's what smells the fine end, what it smells like when it's fermenting. Uh, and it's just totally different. That one, that one, and they're all, if you line them up and taste them, they've all got a reason to be. And uh, that's the only reason, really, we'll do a single vineyard.
0: Do you ferment them all the same?
2: Yeah. Yeah, semillon making is is all pretty simple. In fact, we laugh about having this saying that if you get a young winemaker in that wants to muck around with the semillon, the best thing to do is shoot them. Because uh, if you fire them, they'll only want to go somewhere else and do it. Um, and it, it's the nature of the beast, you know. We It's flavor ripe at... 10 and a half, 11, uh, alcohol equivalent. It's got low pH. It's got quite high acid. And they really benefit with bottle age. They fill out. They get a wonderful softness, honey character, toasty character. And and that comes at about 4 or 5 years old. And then, again, at or 10 or 12 years old. And then they live for 30, 40.
0: Because that's an yeah. unusual lifespan for a lot of white wines.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's always this, you know, uh, Oh, there's nothing wrong with it, saying, you know, you need to drink all the white young because then people drink it and buy some more. I remember Wolf Blass saying that to me once. something about the pH of his reds, and he said, I don't want him to keep it. I want him to drink it. <laughs> okay, Wolfie. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it is what it is.
0: So what is the process, actually, for the semi All
2: our vineyards hand-pruned. We're clean cultivators because we don't have irrigation. Um, and our soil, particularly the red soil, is prone to cracking. Right. The soil actually cracks, cracks open. And in yeah. summer, we can get a fair bit of hot, dry, westerly, northwesterly winds. We allow those cracks to happen, uh, we start losing our soil moisture. So you have to cultivate, make sure you close all those cracks up and maintain the moisture you've got. Uh, I was told by a climate change and agricultural expert. That, that was not sustainable agriculture. And we were standing in a block that was 135 years old, still on its own roots, and had been cultivated like that since it was planted, uh, which I told him. And then I, I, I think I called him a bloody idiot, <laughs> an educated bloody idiot. Um, because, you know, you, you farm the way that your area lets you farm. But yeah, we're clean cultivated. About three to four tonne to the acre. Uh, All of those top ones are all hand-picked. Well, Stevens isn't. Stevens is machine harvested. But Neil Stevens that we lease it from, Neil picks it. And if you needed someone to drive a harvester for your life, or a tractor for your life, you'd get Neil Stevens to do it. I've seen him pick a whole lot cleaner than a team of rough hand-pickers. He's very, very good. Mm, There. We got stuck in a mud on a trellised row. Uh, three years ago, we had wire wrapped around the back wheel of the tractor, and and um, the the tractor and the harvester were at forty five degree angle to each other, and one's got the nose down, the other's got the tail up, and and uh, I remember Neil said, I think everybody better get out of the road while I and the tra- the terrace was about two and a half three foot high, and he drove it down, but it's the only time I've seen him break into a sweat, but he was driving the tractor. So it's machine harvested into the winery quickly and one of the things we do with the whites is the rule is there's no hanging around. Fruit's gotta get through the crusher, get through the press, you know, get into a tank where you can get the cold on it, get the temperature under control. So that all happens quite quickly. In the press we it's funny, we in two thousand and seven we rebuilt one of the old hand presses to put Chardonnay through as a trial. And unfortunately, the the internal screw of the 150-year-old press was cast bronze and it started to strip out. So we bought a little mechanical hydraulic basket press. But what it taught us was we were amazed at the juice that came out of this basket press. And what we were doing in the big press, which is what you're told to do, is you fill it and you rotate it while you're filling so you get better juice extract. But what it does do is oxidise it a bit and it pushes the pH up. And so we, with what we learned in the basket press, now in the big presses, we fill them, we let them drain, and then we blow the bag up three times. And it's only then when we get to pressings that we rotate it. We lose a bit of juice, but we make a lot better wine because of it. So through the press, quickly into a tank, we float. We don't coal settle anymore. So as the wine's going into that settling tank, for want of a better word, it's injected with nitrogen and um, gelatin and all the solids float to the top and you pump the clear juice off underneath into another tank to ferment um, neutral yeast, ferment for 8, 10 days, 14, 15 degrees, and then largely the next couple of months or so spent cleaning them up, stabilising them, and getting them ready to bottle, and no malo, no malo, no malo, no oak, nothing, just what comes out of the vineyard,
0: and then it, it's bottled, basically. Yeah,
2: okay. and then for all our top ones, then I stick them in the shed for another five years, <laughs> uh, which drives the bank manager mad. But that's the way it is. And I suppose at the moment we've got the best part of a hundred thousand dozen bottle aging white, both chardonnay and semillon.
0: And how do you see the differences come through in terms of the flavours from those different vineyards?
2: Belford gets quite strong honey character. Uh, HVD's got this big softness, almost um, when I was a kid I used to dunk biscuits in a glass of water and it always reminds me of that character, this biscuity sort of character. Uh, and HVD, Stevens has got that fine perfume and that one is, has got a strength about it. I find it almost impossible to describe VAT1, it just tastes like VAT1. Yeah, and I think it's probably that strength um, in behind the wine. And these days,
0: VAT1 is a blend of three venues.
2: Three, no, it's two now. Sorry, One of them, Jono's, that used to go into it, reached 100 years old, and now we make that on its own. So something makes 100 years old, we'll make it on its own. I think probably if they've lasted that long, they deserve it. What's Jono's like? Jono's is bigger than any of the ones. Of the others we talked about, it's, it's quite full. And we actually put it through the basket press. So it's got a bit more structure and a bit more texture that comes from that pressing process. So, yeah, it's the, it was always, was that vineyard was always fit, was bigger. But the basket pressings will enhance that. And it seems to work very well. Do
0: you see a big difference with the semion's and the rainy cool years and the dry years?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we really have. Two styles almost. The wetter years, cooler years, you can get almost what I call it sweet fruit. The palate actually, the wine tastes like it's got sugar in it, but it doesn't. It's got this wonderful richness and, and sweetness. In the dry, hotter, drier years, they can be a bit more muscular and a bit, a bit less forgiving as younger wines. The hotter years, you normally got to wait a bit longer for that really opening up and seeing what they'll do.
0: What's the oldest you've had?
2: Christmas 2007, we had a half bottle of 1967, that one, so 40 years. But in a half bottle, really 50, 55 years old. And it had a cork in it, and thank God it was a good one. The wine was as fresh as a daisy. And it lasted about 40 minutes. And then you could see the acid starting to go. And everyone around the table sort of looked at each other and just drank it. <laughs> and it was wonderful. There's incredible developed flavours and complexity, and, but they still had freshness and zip in the acid. And I think that's in our, the thing that probably sets the hunter apart in everything is that there's this singular line and structure of acid that runs through everything we do. And that's what holds them. That's what keeps them fresh and lets them live.
0: So you could see why it was originally labelled as a Riesling for all those years.
2: Yeah, well, everyone drank Riesling, and no one was quite sure. That was the other thing. Semillon, and we're still not entirely sure where the origin is. It's, it's whether it's European or whether it's South African or both. Could easily be both. There were vines from South Africa came out in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th fleet. So, yeah, exactly where it comes from, we're not. Entirely sure. Sorry, the Riesling thing, there was in the second fleet, there was a convict called Shepard who was an orchardist and he got the first finds to grow in Sydney and one of them apparently was similar. So probably that one was South Africa and he was a modest chap and he didn't know what it was and he thought it was, it looked like Riesling that he'd seen growing in Kew Gardens. And because he was modest, he called it Shepherd's Riesling. And it came up to the Hunter Valley when it was opened up and did well and became known as Hunter Valley Riesling, Hunter River Riesling. And then we, we changed to Semillon, as I say, in 1990.
0: Did an ampelographer come? And-
2: oh, no, we all knew it was Semillon. You knew. But it was a bloody lot easier to sell Riesling than it was to sell Semillon. So um, McWilliams had a thing called Elizabeth Riesling And it was 100,000 cases, and it's heyday, and uh, we sort of followed it. But then realized it was time to make the change. Uh, And and we talked to McWilliams about it and decided that we would go together, which would have a bigger impact.
0: Because it's won a lot of awards since then, you know, the Vat
2: One. Yeah, look, the last 15 years, Vat One's probably, it's certainly the most successful white wine in Australian wine shows. And it's probably the most successful table one in the show system. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one more than a chair.
0: So over that period of time, you made some decisions at the winery, but I feel like you also saw a lot of changes in Australia as a whole.
2: Oh, gotcha. The whole change of the industry, really, in, in the development of restaurants, the beginning of the age of the sommelier, the proliferation of bottle shops. So wine became available a whole lot more easily. Probably the biggest thing in the, in the development of the wine industry from the public sense was old Sam Wynn from Wynn's did the single greatest bit of marketing in the history of the wine industry. He took the wine cask and changed the shape of it so it would fit into everyone's refrigerator. And from when he did that, the next 12 months, the sales of Vermouth, dropped by 85% because women drank Vermouth in those days. Suddenly they could have a glass of white wine out of a cask and it was still fine in 10 days' time. And that made a huge difference. That took wine from being special occasion to being day-to-day beverage and that made a huge, huge difference. A lot of people, a lot of more modern members of the industry, particularly the little guys, always poo-poo casks, oh they're terrible things, should never have had them but most of them wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for casks uh, because they just got people to drink to drink wine to become a day-to-day beverage.
0: So what were your big challenges when you got to the winery?
2: Oh, <laughs> I suppose the challenges for me in those early days were opening up the lines of distribution and sales. That was the job I had to do with We'd had a distributor in Sydney. They'd gone broke six or eight months before and and we needed to do something about it. And so I decided that I'd why would I give that margin away? I could go and do it myself. So uh, I had a bootload of samples and a street directory and and the yellow pages out of the phone book and uh, decided to be in a liquor store in every suburb of Sydney. And, of course, we built built and built on that, built export, Actually, I came here, came to Los Angeles, first 1972. I was still at university. Dad had done a deal and it hadn't gone well and I had to come over and fix it. I remember explaining to my Scots business law lecturer that I wouldn't be able to hand assignments in because I was working in America. Okay. <laughs> I got a, you better decide, um, you know, what you want to do. So I got one of my mates to do the assignments for me. Everyone was happy. And so, yeah, that was, the, that was the start of export and uh, it just sort of all those things grew. And that was a time where the business principles of the day were just grow. Doesn't matter what else you do, just grow. As long as you're growing, you're doing all right. And, and that's what we did. We went out around the world with a box of wine under one arm and a carton of cold beer under the other and away we went. And uh, got to know the trade and, and sold Australia and Australian wine in general.
0: What were some of the challenges early on to doing that?
2: I remember walking into Sherry Lehman, and I think it must have been old Mr. Aaron. I walked in and said, you know, good morning, I'm Bruce Tyrrell, Tyrrell's Wines in Australia. We're the emerging wine nation in the world. turned his back and walked away. And I kept following him, kept talking. And he turned around and he said, You get the so and so out of my shop. He said, I hate people telling lies. I said, What do you mean? He said, They don't have wine in Australia. He said, And if they did, who'd buy it? He said, I got Greek wine, I got Russian wine, I got Ukrainian wine. Who wants Australian wine? Get out. I'll see you next year, Mr. Aaron. And uh, he said, Don't come back. And it took eight years to get in. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, well, those days were the challenge was actually, I think the challenges of the 70s, 60s and 70s were actually getting people to drink wine. Didn't matter what it was, we'd get them to drink. you go and do a tasting in Newcastle, our local city, and you'd have a guy with a cigarette in his mouth, a glass of sparkling wine in one hand and a schooner of beer in the other. And it didn't matter what they were drinking as long as you got them to drink wine. Well, that was 60s and, and to some extent the 70s. The 80s was then a bit more about product differentiation and, and the emergence of, you know, the top wine market. Grange went through $10 a bottle and the, the retailers all said they'd never pay it. But yeah, 80s, 80s was then segregating, was you know, here's your day-to-day wine, but here's some great wine, here's what you've got to drink. And there was an interest there for that. And that, that continued through the 90s. And we went through that period where we were really important in the press. We were what was new and happening and, and there were great wine articles and, you know, there was Robert Parker started up, the Wine Spectator started up, those things. And probably today in the printed media, a number of us struggle with the fact that there isn't much wine coverage anymore. It's all food. Everyone's interested in food, Master Chef. All of the shows, the celebrity chefs from across the world have all changed that. And then the last eight or ten years has been the fight against the anti-alcohol movement.
0: Oh, is that strong in Australia? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is pretty much all over the world.
0: Outside of the anti-alcohol situation, after there was a move to dry wines in Australia from Australian consumers... What happened next? I mean, what was the '80s '90s like for?
2: Oh, White look, that was that was the the big change time, and it had been helped a bit earlier by the the Asian immigration at the end of the Vietnam War, which improved. Melbourne was okay at home because it always had the Greeks and Italians, and they had a dining culture. Sydney didn't. Sydney had a pub culture. Uh, stand at the bar. Uh, it used to be six o'clock closing. The six o'clock swill, you know. A like quarter to six, you'd order six beers and in 20 minutes you'd drink them. Um, but that changed, 10 o'clock closing in the pubs, drinking became an eating more civilised um, and just the growth of wine came with that because it was the logical thing to do. Also, in the 80s, Australians started to travel. Well, you could actually get from Australia to somewhere, you know, uh, without it taking you three months on a boat. And so our level of sophistication in eating and drinking changed. People went to Paris, they went to New York, they went to London, so much London, and that was the big change. That was the change in culture. You don't get big swings in activity unless the culture changes for a reason, and all of that happened. So much of the Thai and Vietnamese and Chinese, that food just boomed, and it's wonderful food. It's light and it's... And you have a whole lot of different flavors and lots of courses. I love eating that way. And it suits beautifully with wine. It suits beautifully with ours, with the finer, more elegant styles.
0: So who drinks Hunter Valley Semillon today?
2: It's got a hardcore following and because there's not that much of it. It's a couple of percent of the whites planted in Australia. I think in a country like this, where people are looking for something new, always looking for something new and different, uh, a lot of the drive today is for lower alcohol and an 11% alcohol against the Chardonnay at thirteen R 14
0: So you also make Reds and you make Reds in Hunter and you make Reds in Victoria and New South Wales. So what's that all like?
2: Uh, well, Hunter, of course, is home base. Hunter Shiraz. in the 60s and 70s, Hunter Shiraz was the number one Shiraz in the country. We had the reputation above the Barossa, above McLaren Vale. Probably competed with Great Western in Victoria. Uh, Early 80s came, a lot of new plantings, a lot of new American oak and a lot of money for the wines and they didn't perform. And so we lost that reputation which we've, in the last 10, 12 years of fought and and are now clawing it back with a vintage like 2014, everyone suddenly talked about the Hunter again which is really good. But we've had a local local drive to get rid of Bredomyces out of the area. We had it. Um, and a couple of guys, one used to work for me, I've seen him physically belt another winemaker and give him a good hiding. And he kept saying, you're dragging us down, you dirty so-and-so. You clean your winery up or I'll do a good job of this. And, and the guy did. He changed and... and So, we pretty much got rid of that out of the area. And so, our reds are much cleaner and they got better fruit and they still have better wines.
0: Because it used to be that there was this leathery character with the Hunter Valley reds and people thought it was a terroir thing, but it turned out to be probably Brett. Probably Brett.
2: Yeah. We can also get this character, and we've got this wonderful red soil. And you have a hot day and you get a storm. And for the first minute or two, you've just got these odd big drops. And they hit, and there's a smell on the red soil, smell of sweet, wet earth. Uh, and we get that still, which is not Brett. It's a clean smell, where Brett's not a clean smell.
0: But the wood derived Brett character, that's been changed out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. On our winery, we burnt 70 old barrels. But we were told in the 90s by the technocrats that we should lower our sulfur levels, that we shouldn't sterile filter. Um, and a year like '99 came along, big year, better rain, and the Bret went, Hallelujah, brother, here I come again. I'm gonna get you. And that's really when we, I'm in mean, 2004, when we really, before 2004, through 2003, uh, we took to it with a sledgehammer in our winery. And I was putting tartaric acid in the picking bins when we were picking red because the best way to control Brett's get your pH down. Now That worked. That was one of the things we did. And it's up pretty much throughout the district. So and, and also through our local wine show, which is very strong. We had Len Evans as chairman for quite a while and then Ian Riggs, who were both seriously against it. So, you know, they would name producers at the show awards dinner. They'd get up and say, Company number so and so, Reds didn't do any good this year because you haven't fixed your Brett problem. And so it was very really done very publicly. So I think to some extent we shamed some people into it. But now, no, the reds are much better. And our reds are a medium body, that's all. They're savoury. They've got the same line of acid as the whites have got. And like the whites, i will live for a long, long time. So they normally don't look as attractive when they're young. A bit like the Simulons can be a bit shy, but give them some bottle age and they open right out.
0: So do you see a lot of difference in the harvest between something like the Hunter and then Victoria and further south?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, the the timing's different. Hunter's early because we're the the most northerly. However, if you look at Clare, they're just behind us and Clare's the same latitude as Sydney. So they're quite northerly as well. And the other interesting bit in that is the areas that makes the whites that live the longest in Australia are the two hottest areas, most northerly areas, Clare and the Hunter.
0: That's really interesting when you think yeah, about
2: it. Yeah, which is against all modern thought. But, uh, you know, the Hunter Semillon, Claire, Riesling, made well, will live longer than the Reds.
0: And probably picked at the right time.
2: Oh, yeah. If you leave them out too long, get them overripe, then yeah, you lose your acid, acids down, your pH is up. Wines don't have the strength and stability to go on. Yeah, they might be great to drink at two or three years old. But I think the definition of great wine is that it's got to age. It's got to perform in the bottle. You've got to open it 15, 20 years old and say, damn, we should have left that another five years.
0: Did you ever run any trials on mallow on whites?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Never on on because there was never enough mallow for it to happen anyhow at the sort of levels we pick it. Chardonnay, yeah. Yeah, we through the 80s, you know, we saw the Californian Chardonnay. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I tried Farni-Anti Chardonnay. And it was this massive wine. And Chardonnay really is the closest white variety to red. Um, So through the 80s, 80 through 88, that 47, our top Chardonnay was Melo. We did a tasting, end of 88 it must have been, of everything we'd made. And I could have taken the wines of the 70s and switched them with the wines of the 80s, the Chardonnays, and no one would have questioned it because the younger ones with the malo looked so much older. The colours were brown, they were getting flat in the palate. But well, the 70s still had green gold colour and were still fresh. So we went back to no malo then, as early as that, um, and have been followed since then. But I think, you know, it's that wonderful, one of the great things about white wine is just sitting down drinking it and it's really good and it's crisp and it's clean and it doesn't matter whether it's 10 bucks a bottle or 100 bucks a bottle. Got to have that freshness and cleanness.
0: Seems like Semyon gives a, a kind of texture as well as a kind of fruit, like part of the fruit is texture.
2: Yeah, I think it's texture on the palate. And it'll depend sometime in vintages in a lighter year. We'll leave them sit on their leaves. I've seen them gee, left there for three, four months. And that's actually to just beef up the palate. So it's a bit more texture and structure on the palate. Um, the Jono's that we put through the basket press has real texture and structure and the uh, first time we did it was in 2009. I've seen a couple of people try that wine and go, there's Chardonnay in there, and, and probably a fair bit of it. They're going, no, nah. all Semillon. Um, and that that helps. But no, Semillon's a bit more linear, I think. But your vineyard like HVD, it just makes bigger, softer wines.
0: What do you see as the future of the hunter? I mean, what's going to happen? I feel like you have this kind of sweep with it that few people have had in terms of the amount of decades you've been there.
2: I think we could yet go back, become a bit smaller.
0: Because it's about 120 wineries now.
2: Yeah. Yeah, That things are not, not easy at the moment. The acreage is shrinking. Growers are not making any money. And so they'll go out. Uh, and we may, uh, the worst end of that, we go back to just the great old vineyards, vineyards that were there in 1970, 1967. Don't think that's going to happen. But at the moment, we've got a group in their 30s pretty much, 30s maybe, a couple in their early 40s, of young winemakers. And they're incredibly dedicated, they're very smart, and, and they're going to take it back up. And it's really, really, very pleasing to see. I try and spend as much time with them as I can. I don't want to go and sit up in the back corner of the pub with all the old blacks. Uh, I'm much happier at the front talking to the young ones. There's a dozen of them I've got to take to lunch in the next month or so because we've got to set in place who's actually going to run the area. Who's going to make those decisions? Because a couple of us have finished. I've, I'll finish that in six months' time. I'm done with my industry politics. I'm out of that completely and I've done it for 40 years. So it's time for someone else to have a go. But, yeah, look, having those crew there mean that there's a tremendous future for the area. And I think that's really important. It, it's not to do with the vines and the wine, it's to do with the people. The right people are there, the little area will go ahead. The wrong ones are there, it'll go back.
0: Bruce Tyrrell sees a young future for the oldest wine region in Australia. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Bruce Tiro of the Tiro Vineyards in the Hunter Valley of Australia. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs...